0: Good morning. I hope you had a great night of sleep last night, dreaming good dreams and having good thoughts. One of my kids, actually all my kids, one of the things they love every night is they want to make sure that they we pray for no bad dreams. We want to ask God to protect our home. My wife always asks to surround our house with God's angels and protect us from all bad dreams. Now the reason I hope that for you today is that today we are going into one of the most terrifying, uh, bad dreams of the Bible in Daniel chapter 7. And it's going to be in this where we're going to see that our union with the Son of Man incorporates us into His kingdom, into His power, and to His dominion. So Daniel chapter 7 marks a new transition into Daniel's book. Up to this point, it's been primarily chronological narrative. It's been a story. And now we are going to start seeing visions and dreams that he has about not only what's happening in the present, but future realities. Now when we think of apocalyptic literature, which Daniel 7 through 12 uh, is... We tend to think of big catastrophic end times, but apocalyptic or apocalypse literally means to reveal. And so as we're going through this and the remaining passages through Advent, we're actually gonna be getting a picture of something that's more real, more true, or that's deeper than what we see on the surface in the physical. Think of this like a picture-in-picture, if you're old enough to remember. You have the main screen showing you something, but then you also have another viewpoint of something else that's also happening at the same time. That's apocalyptic literature. While our eyes are on the physical and what we see happening right now, This type of literature opens our eyes to something that's bigger, that's more true, and more real in the spiritual realm that's running in parallel with what's happening in the physical realm of what we see. So that's what's happening in apocalyptic literature and what we see in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 also breaks away from the the story that's happening up to one through six. We see in verse one, that it um, happens in the first year of King Belshazzar. So chronologically, this happens somewhere between chapter four and chapter five. And Daniel's also personally in a transition at this point. Under Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four, things were going well for him. He had a prominent place of power. He was well known by the king. He had a position that um, he could exercise authority. under King Belshazzar, under this new administration and new kingdom, there, there he didn't have that. He was forgotten by Belshazzar, we see later in chapter 5. So while things were likely getting comfortable for Daniel in chapter 4, Daniel 5, he's losing prominence, he's lost a little bit of power, uh, administrations are changing, and things are of concern about what's it going to look like for him and his fellow exiles. So, that is what we enter into in this vision. So, in this vision, he gets this picture of these four beasts coming out of the great sea, it says in chapter, verse 2. Now, the great sea is a picture of chaos, of disorder, of even of evil in the Old Testament. And so, out of this comes four beasts. The first beast is um, a, a lion that has eagle's wings. Um this one eventually was made to stand on two feet like a man and even given a mind like a man. This was likely and is the picture of the historical figure of Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Then it moves on to the subsequent beasts. The second beast is a beast that's it looks like a bear, but it's propped up on one side, and it has a mouth full of ribs. This beast was told to arise and devour much flesh. And so this would be a more evil or more um, different type of beast than the first one. Okay, The third beast, moving on, was like a leopard. It had four wings, but it also had four heads. And dominion or power was given to the leopard. But then there's the fourth beast and this is where we're going to spend some more of our time. Because in verse 7, it says that Daniel, to Daniel, this fourth beast was terrifying, dreadful, and was exceedingly strong. These beasts were pictures of different kingdoms that happened historically. So for Daniel, some of that is past, as in the first beast, Nebuchadnezzar, but some of it is future for Daniel. Now there's lots of different Um, opinions and ideas about what these four beasts are, whether it's Medo, the Persian, or the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek, and the Roman, all all of these are questions. But out of this fourth beast, this fourth beast, there's a horn that is more vocal and more prominent than all the other things. And horn typically means power. So there's a, a fourth power or a fourth kingdom that was worse than all the others for God's people. Okay? Now, we enter a new scene and we see the a new character called the Ancient of Days in verse 9. We he this Ancient of Days literally means eternal one. This is a picture of God who is our father, but in this scene he is our judge. He's Um, Entering, He sits down for judgment. The books are open. There's fire. That's a picture of the presence of God here in this passage. And he judges the beasts that are present. Now, while he judges them and they're thrown into darkness, their dominion is taken away, but their lives are prolonged for a season and a time. They have no power. They have no teeth, but yet they're still present remember that. New scene, new character. We have the Ancient of Days, and now enters in what's called, that's like a Son of Man. So, <clears throat> verse 13 and 14, let's read this, because this is the central point of this passage. So, I saw in the night visions, and behold, this with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him, the, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So let's unpack this for a second. When something in the Old Testament came on clouds of heaven, this was a picture of divinity, okay? So we now have a picture of a divine one but also that came like the Son of Man. Okay? Son of Man literally means human. So we have a divine one, which is a human, and to this divine human is given dominion and power and glory, and all the nations of all the world would come before him, and his kingdom would never end. Now, if you have been in church at any point, or if you've read the New Testament at all, your bell around Jesus should be going off like crazy. We tend to think of of Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. But he looked at himself uh, not only in that light, but the most uh, commonly used phrase that Jesus described of himself was the Son of Man. I'm going to give you one example. Matthew 26. While he's on trial, he's about to go to the cross. Um, you have these uh, the Caiaphas and the council. They ask him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ or the Son of God. This is, uh, verse 64. Jesus said to him, You have said it so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is ascribing to himself uh, while, he's about, uh, while he's being tried to go to the cross, he says that he is the Son of Man who's coming on the clouds of heaven. What is the council's response? They tear their robes and they say that he has uttered blasphemy. They knew what Jesus was saying. They knew that Jesus was saying he was the divine one. That he was the son of man. That power and dominion and authority was given to him. Jesus is the son of man. He is divine. John 1.1 says, in the beginning he was with God, but that he was God. But not only was he divine, but he took on flesh. John 1.14, that the, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. That in Jesus, God the Son, the divine one, became God the man, the human divine one. He took, in his divinity, he added to it humanity, flesh and bone, physical reality, okay? And in his life, so we see as the Son of Man, his life was lived perfectly, showing us what it meant to be God, but also showing us what it meant to be fully man. He always did what he saw the Father doing. He lived perfectly, But he didn't just live and incorporated us in that. He died in our place. Philippians 2 talks about how he um, emptied himself. That he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death on the cross. And the divine man, the Son of God, Jesus himself, died on the cross. And in his death, he took our sin and gave us his life. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But the divine one died on the cross. But he didn't just stay dead. What well, we celebrate on Easter, three days later, He rose again, victorious, defeating His enemies of sin, Satan, and death. In the Divine One died, physically died. That's why Jesus had to be buried to show that He physically really died. But He rose again, embodied, um, defeating our greatest enemies. So this is a picture of Jesus. He is the Son of Man that comes on clouds. He has power. He has a kingdom. He has been um, given all of this. Ephesians 1 says that he has been placed far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That is true of Jesus. But there's more happening in Daniel chapter 7. Because as we look in this idea of dominion and power, it's not just given to the Son of Man. It's also given to the people of God. So after verse 14, Daniel wants to know more about what's happening. He goes to inquire about who these four beasts are. Listen to verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever forever and ever. So he talks more about this fourth beast. And out of that fourth beast, remember that horn, the horn made war with the saints, verse 21, and prevailed over them until the ancient days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So then the horned one continues to um, make war upon, devour the whole earth, uh, this fourth one speaks words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of God. This is the historical figure of Antio- uh, Antiochus the Fourth. Some people attribute this not only to that, that historical figure, but to the Antichrist. However, we do it, this is a picture of the evil one, the enemy, of a figure that represents all that is in opposition to God and his people going after God. Antiochus in the third century BC was like he did a holocaust before the holocaust. He was evil. He was vile against God's people. This represents, this foretells to Daniel and God's people about that time. But listen to verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The saints of the Most High. This is giving us a picture of what Jesus later more fully fulfills in our union with Christ. It's the reality that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God's people who have placed their faith and dependence and declared Him Lord of their life. Those people are incorporated, united with God in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. So Jesus' perfect life is now our perfect life. His death on the cross is our death to our sin. Romans 6 talks about in our baptism, we're united with God in his death. But it also means in his resurrection that Jesus is the first fruits, 1 Corinthians says, and that you and I will be raised from the dead one day. But we are in this moment raised with him. This is what Ephesians 2 6 says. We've been made alive together with Christ, that's verse 5, and verse 6, and we've raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.1 says, we've been blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Notice that in Christ. That is union with Christ. That means that what is true of Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, is true of you and I as well. As Jesus defeated death on the cross by the resurrection, we are now united with him and have been had death defeated on our behalf. Our sins are defeated. And we united with Christ who is enthroned. He is the head of the church, which we are his body. And all things are under his feet, Ephesians 1, 23 says. So that means it's true of you and I, the dominion and authority and power and kingdom, the rule and reign of God, you and I get to experience here and now. That that is true of us presently, And it will be more fully true in the future. This, brothers and sisters in Christ, is the reality that we walk in. That the Son of Man is enthroned and we are incorporated in his dominion, in his power, and we are co-heirs of that truth. So what does this all mean for us? In the midst of increased um, chaos and disorder, in the increased fear, in the transition of administrations, all those realities that are happening in our lives. What does that mean for us? Let me, let me just tell you three things briefly. The first thing is that you and I don't have to cling to lesser powers. We don't have to cling to lesser powers. A lot of times we go to things looking to be provided security and hope. That may be our bank accounts, that may be positions of power, it may be our jobs, it may be an incorporation into a political party or platform, and by them being in power, we know that we have some power, we have some security, we have some significance. But if we're incorporated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if we are incorporated into and united with Jesus in his power, kingdom, and dominion, all those things are 2nd fiddle. They're insignificant. They're important. But in the grand scheme of things, they're lesser powers. So we don't need to sell our bowl of porridge like Esau did We know that we have already been given it, so we don't need to look for lesser powers to satisfy us, or to fulfill us, or to provide us security or comfort. We have that in Jesus. Second, we don't need to exercise our or um, use our power like the world. We are given dominion. We are given a power and authority in the heavenlies. But we don't walk and we look to Jesus on how to use that power. Jesus came humbly. God himself became a baby, needy, dependent for life itself. He took on the form of a slave, Philippians 2 said. He emptied some of his divine powers and rights for a time, dependent upon the Spirit. And he came loving. He came humble. He came to serve. The greatest among us will be servants of all. So we don't come with a power to lord it over people. We come humbly, peaceful presence like last week, or peaceful kingdom members. And we come to serve, to be gentle, to be kind, to be loving. Yes, speak the truth to power, but to do it out of love that we've received from Christ. We don't need to exercise our power like the world does, lording it over them. But third, we don't need to worry. We don't need to worry. It's a reality that God's got this. This is a picture of not only the present, but a future reality. God's sovereignty is in charge. Jesus is seated on the throne we don't need to look to lesser powers to fulfill and satisfy us, but we don't even need to look to them to show us whether we need to worry or not to worry. Things can go be going on around us that are confusing, that are chaotic, that are out of order, that we don't like. But we don't need to worry because God's sovereignty has got this. This is what um, a quote from a guy named Charles C.H. Spurgeon he says this, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian rests their head. Brothers and sisters, our union with Christ, with union with the Son of Man, incorporates us into the kingdom of power, His kingdom, His power, and His dominion. We don't need to look to lesser powers. We don't need to exercise that power by lording it over people. We don't need to worry because the, his sovereignty allows us to rest. And so while we go to sleep, we don't need to worry about dr- bad dreams. As we lay our heads on our pillow, it's a reminder that we can rest in God's sovereignty, that he's got this, and we can go about our lives being faithful, being gentle, being loving, as we are exiles in a foreign land. Let me pray. Father, thank you that Jesus... You are victorious, you are king, you lived perfectly, you died in our place as we remember in communion. Your body broken, your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, but you also rose again, you ascended on high, and now we incorporated with you that is true of us, that your life was our life lived, your death was our death, and now we have your righteousness but we're also incorporated into your power. So help us not look to lesser powers. Help us to live faithfully, to live lovingly, to live gently, to use the power given to us for the sake of others. And we long for the day for you to return and to renew and restore all of it. And in the meantime, remind us that we are united with you. We have access to God the Father by the Spirit because of Jesus. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus our King. Amen.